Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined across the dispatch box by none other than Zach Green. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be discussing a mixture of British and American politics topics. But before we get into all of those, Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? I think the most groundbreaking story has been Donald Trump being a uh, booted off of near enough every social media site. I think the one that amused me the most was Pinterest. Uh, it just kind of shows you the direction of travel that it started with, uh, I believe, Instagram and Facebook giving him like a temporary ban and then Twitter permanently banned him. Then it was Facebook then it was Instagram then it was all the others. And then it, it's probably the thing that I think is on everyone's, whether you're in the US or the UK, on everyone's lips at the moment. Indeed, the, the situation in America is just so extraordinary. And what we should say before we do get into this episode of, of the podcast is that Zach and I recorded or rather broadcasted an episode of Midfield Politics live during the Capitol Hill riot. You can listen to that if you'd like over on our Periscope channel. I did try to download it and then re-upload it as a podcast, but for some reason it wouldn't let me. So yeah, if, if you'd like to hear kind of our raw coverage of what happened last week then then please do listen to that and you're right Zach the situation facing Donald Trump now in terms of where and how he can kind of get his message across to supporters and non-supporters alike is greatly restricted there was a there was a meme I saw earlier about how Donald Trump was going to start taking mum's net by storm and (laughs) the thing as well is I mean even the right wing parlor kind of social network app has basically been taken offline at this point initially it was kind of taken off the app stores and now i think they kind of use amazon's data services to run the platform and that's kind of been shut down too and you're seeing a real tussle between people who believe this is kind of blocking free speech in not only america but the world and then you see other people who say well if you incite kind of an attempted coup then probably you shouldn't be able to tweet on these kind of platforms And I think all this is kind of rested on an interesting discussion. And this is where I kind of go a little bit more policy wonk on everyone about Section 230. So there's legislation in America called Section 230 that basically says that social networks and basically any online platform where visitors can comment. So if you comment on the BBC website, for example, it means that the place that is hosting that data is not responsible for the things you say. So, for instance, I could tweet something horrific about any topic in the world, but people couldn't sue Twitter because I had tweeted that statement, essentially. It basically means that these social networks aren't treated as publishers. Now, there's been a really long discussion about how this should be repealed or how this should be changed for a long, long time. And the thing that really does drive me somewhat furious is the idea that, and this is from conservatives and republicans in the united states the idea that they should get rid of section 230 to then protect free speech on the internet the issue you have there is that removing protections in section 230 would basically encourage social networks to ban more people for the kind of things that donald trump has been banned for because it would mean that twitter would be liable for the things that are posted and if the things that are posted are kind of inciting violence of course that's an issue for Twitter. So, yeah, I think the idea that Section 230 would be repealed by Republicans is, is quite funny, in, in all honesty. 
Zach, what do you make of that? I think it it, it definitely pivots towards a larger policy on the regulation of big tech. So, for example, you had Angela Merkel surprisingly actually condemning Twitter for taking Trump off air to say that it was a fundamental breach of our free speech rights. And I think that's what it cross cuts down to. Do you increase regulation on your big tech companies or do you try and emancipate the individual from big tech? And it leaves that policy gap of, yeah, you want to hold people accountable for what they say, but you also have to hold the platform they are saying it on accountable as well. And it's something that I think for the past decade has always been like this question, a question of growing importance. I think 10 years ago on Twitter, it, it was still in its early years. I think it was, what, four years old, Twitter, back in 2010 or 2011 even. And nowadays, I think where Twitter is basically now the central capital of where everyone is, I think Facebook has kind of lost that title. But at the same time, Facebook and Twitter together are this powerhouse. And if they do escape liability, then, of course, there are going to be questions on their roles and responsibilities. And a thing that's come out is that people do agree with Trump's suspension. But if you look at what Donald Trump has tweeted for the past five years, this is, it goes beyond his presidency. And if you look at how Twitter justify why people get suspended normally, you would always ask, well, Trump should have been suspended years ago. Why has it taken them all this long to do something that should have been done years ago? So it's that idea of, is this a significant sea change in Twitter policy and where Twitter are going to be going? Or is this simply a, a thing against Trump? And I think that's what his supporters are now pivoting the discussion towards actually this isn't about free speech this isn't about inciting violence this is simply something to get rid of donald trump and as we head towards inauguration day i think it it was fateful that one of trump's last tweets was he was confirming he wasn't going to be arriving at joe biden's inauguration that does anything change post inauguration as to the pundits that have kind of propped up the trump propaganda for the last four years as well or is this simply getting rid of Trump and those closest to him on the social media sites. Definitely. And kind of going forward, there's going to be so many things to talk about with regards to American politics, Donald Trump in particular, and of course, President-elect Joe Biden. The inauguration is going to be really interesting. And I, I don't know how you feel about this, Zach, but I'm not 100% sure that they should be holding this kind of outdoors. That's just the feeling that yeah. I get at this point. And the, the thing to point out as well is there was a document circulated by the FBI yesterday, so on the 11th of January, that, that suggested that kind of armed, and this is the terminology that is used in the report, armed protest kind of take place at all 50 state capitals across the United States of America leading up and on inauguration day. Now, that in itself is extraordinary. And that, again, the fact that we're calling it an armed protest seems somewhat surreal. <laughs> that we're going to have to keep an eye on. Before we get into kind of the main topic of the podcast, I tweeted earlier on our podcast account at Midfield Politic asking if anyone wants anything in particular. We had one question in, so basically they said, we'd be interested to hear a little about the US Senate and how the balance of power may or may not change again in the midterms in 2022. Is a blue Senate a short-term thing or is it likely to stay that way. I'm going to hedge my bets and predict that Zach 
probably doesn't have a firm feeling on this at the moment, given it's two years away. So I'll basically outline what I tweeted in response. So there are three races in particular for the Republicans that look a little bit shaky. So they have to defend Senate seats in Pennsylvania, Florida and Ohio. Obviously, states that were very hotly contested this year and into the future as well. And of course, has been the case for a number of years. A seat that would worry me if I were a Democrat would be kind of Raphael Warnock, who is going to be vulnerable in 2022 as a Democrat in Georgia. So in summary, what I'd say is that Republicans worry about the Democrats in 2022. How that translates into the hands up and say, I have absolutely no idea because that would involve lots more research and I haven't had time. Zach, any thoughts on that? I think I just echo what you're saying there, and, and for the results in Georgia earlier, that that sea change, that 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 swings towards the Democrats. It'll be interesting to see how that holds up over the next two years, uh, and if if it does continue, you wouldn't bet against probably a second Democrat term in 2024. But we are way off uh, that anyway. But it, nonetheless, over the next two years, all these kind of races are going to be important in determining really what are the Republicans' chances post Trump if there is such thing as a post-Trump era for the Republicans, and how will the Biden presidency try to extend its reach into communities where they really did lag behind at the election in November? We haven't actually recorded a podcast since the Georgia election came out. I think we did one kind of a couple of days beforehand. It's important to note, of course, that both Democrats did win the Senate seats in the state of Georgia, which means that kind of the Senate is now a 50-50 tie. And as a result, if there is kind of tied votes in the Senate, it will be decided by the vice president, who, of course, after the 20th of January will be Kamala Harris. It's extraordinary that the Democrats did win both seats. I think, well, is it extraordinary? In some respects, yes. In some respects, no. If you look at it from a historical perspective, it is unheard of that the Democrats would win both seats in a state like Georgia. However, given the trajectory that we've been on, given the fact that 2020 was so close and given the fallout that there had been since the election i don't think it's particularly surprising that both of them did win i personally thought that both could go but kind of warnock winning was the most kind of realistic outcome to expect and the fact that the democrats now have control of the house of representatives the senate and the white house is particularly significant because it means that Joe Biden has an easier ride of confirming his executive picks. And one that I wanted to talk about briefly with you, Zach, was the fact that Merrick Garland is, is back in the news. He's set to be appointed or confirmed rather once Biden is, is inaugurated as the new attorney general. So the thing to remember about Garland is this is the guy who was put forward by Barack Obama in the final year of his presidency for a seat on the Supreme Court. The Republicans who controlled the Senate at the time basically said, there's not a hope in hell this is going to happen. We control the Senate and the House of Representatives. We're not going to work with you on this. And they basically mothballed it through until Donald Trump was inaugurated in January, kind of back four years ago. And I think that's really interesting. So Garland now is is potentially the next attorney general. And it's interesting because Biden waited so long to confirm this and to kind of lay out his intentions, because basically what happened is 
Biden waited until after they had control of the Senate and then said, look, we're going to move Garland from a really important appeals court in New York to this seat in the executive. And what that says basically is that, well, the Democrats are now confident that they'll be able to confirm judges. And that will make a huge difference in terms of what we've seen under the Senate majority leadership of Mitch McConnell. Again, I'll, I'll totally echo what you're saying as well. And it was interesting about the idea of the courts and law and order and all of that was kind of not touched upon by Joe Biden in the campaign, which I thought was a very smart move because I think that would play to Donald Trump's strengths and could have always led the way to the Republicans kind of putting it out there that Democrats, it was all part of this conspiracy to pack the courts, etc. even though that's what the Republicans were doing. And I think it was a smart choice to wait for the for the runoffs just to confirm that appointment and i believe i think around all of that uh, during his one of his speeches in the capitol hill rights he was putting forward more appointments that shows actually a more diverse cabinet than a lot of us imagined from joe biden so in general it it, it will be interesting i think to see how the republicans react to it because I think they're in a le- in a less lesser position than they were probably six months ago when it comes to potential appointments that are being circled around in the event of a Biden presidency. And now we're in it for sure. And the important thing to remember is having control of the Senate gives Joe Biden a much much larger degree of freedom in terms of the people he he's appointing to the executive, and that makes his life so much easier. And it means that the Democrats won't be so inclined to kind of pander to. Mitch McConnell. It doesn't mean it will be easy for Joe Biden because there are a number of conservative Democrats who will make his life difficult anyway, but it's certainly better to have a 50-50 Senate than a 51-49 Senate in favour of the Republican Party. Now, Zach, before we move over onto the British side of things, is there anything else you'd like to talk about over in the United States? Just a bit of a footnote on impeachment proceedings is a very fast moving story and no doubt it will extend beyond when Trump's presidency officially expires uh, in, oh, I believe, eight days time. So eight days time, maybe end of the week, one of the two. Um, so I think the reason we're being reluctant I think, to properly go into detail about impeachment proceedings is because it's such a fast moving story. And you can see I think where Trump is facing that second impeachment, the consequences are not going to be known until we officially arrive at that juncture. Yeah. So again, just to reiterate what Zach said, so Democrats in the House of Representatives have drawn up impeachment documents to potentially impeach Donald Trump for a second time. And of course, it's important to remember that this would be the first ever occasion when a when a president has been impeached twice. What I would say on this is it is. I'm 99.9% sure that Democrats in the House are going to impeach the president. The only question mark is what happens in the Senate, because, of course, currently it is controlled by the GOP. There are a number of ways this could play out. Basically, Mitch McConnell could slowball this until Donald Trump is out of office, or Mitch McConnell could hold the trial and, and hold the vote on whether or not to remove Donald Trump from office there and then. The final thing that is important on this, that if Donald Trump is found guilty of the thing that he's impeached for in the Senate, it will disallow him from running for public office ever again. So the fact that Democrats want to impeach Donald Trump is not just to get him out of office now. It's mainly to kind of show, well, 
this is the public record. We do not stand for this kind of behaviour in public office. And it would be a huge blow both to the GOP and Donald Trump personally, who continues to talk about kind of potential runs in the future. Now, Zach, on that note, we wanted to talk about British politics. And the story that has sadly caught our attention yet again is free school meal. So, Zach, what's what's going on there? So there was it, it all in a way it all kicked off last night when roadside mum and it's a very very harrowing series of tweets about actually so basically those who are on free school meals at the moment that can't make it are given instead of vouchers they're given these kind of packs to uh help i think is it across a week maybe even two weeks basically for their families as, as according to how many children they have etc etc and what was in the pack was not the original 30 pounds worth of food that usually you'd get with a voucher and this was not an isolated incident. Um, a trailblazer in this kind of area has always been Jack Monroe, who's always been really good with this kind of idea, idea of what to do with not when you've not got that much food, what recipes can you really do? And she asked many people, you know, is this just an isolated incident? Many people sent in what they were being sent. And it was all across the country. It was just harrowing really upsetting when you're looking at the amount of food or the lack of food that was being given in these packages by the private contract i believe it was chalk wells and and then people were comparing it to other places and it was all this the common denominator was there was hardly any food and this was not the 30 pounds that you would get with the voucher uh, and it's caused such a big debate amongst those on Twitter, those on Facebook, and it's gone beyond that. Uh, uh, it's a big public issue at the moment in times of uh, lockdown and all of the sort. So the situation at the moment with regards to the free school meals is that it's split across a number of different companies and a number of different organisations. So the way that it's been working is that local authorities have been given the choice and given the power to determine how these funds are spent. What's meant to happen is that kids on free school meals are meant to get £30 worth of food a week. Previously, that had just been given to them as a voucher for their parents to spend at a supermarket. And it's important to remember that these vouchers and I'm preempting kind of criticism of the voucher scheme. These vouchers did not allow the recipients to buy things like cigarettes or alcohol. It was simply so you could buy the food. That has been replaced with a food hamper scheme, which basically is provided predominantly by a company called Chartwells. There are a number of others. One of them is called Harrison's. And basically the food is meant to last for either one week or two weeks, depending on kind of the setup. And the images that have been shared on social media are, as Zach said, absolutely harrowing. And uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. So there's a picture here from one of one of the hampers that's been sent in from Kent. It's got a full loaf of bread, uh, two apples, three oranges, two very small potatoes, some skimmed milk, a couple of tomatoes, a can of sweet corn and some tuna chunks it's just i mean it, it, to really state the obvious it's clearly just not enough food is it and there are examples where the hampers have got like i mean this one is particularly ridiculous it's got a full loaf of bread two oranges an apple a can of heinz beans two decent sized potatoes some cheese wrapped up in cling film and a couple of bits of ham wrapped up in cling film and 
this is what I don't understand about this whole situation. If if the government is going to offer these food hampers, which is a ridiculous idea in the first place, then why isn't it standardised across the country where you get the same? So you get a loaf of bread, three mm. cans of beans, whatever it might be. Why, why are people getting different things kind of beyond me? And why are things being wrapped up in cling film? Like, this is going to be 30 quid worth mm. of food. And I'd be... Money bags for tuna as well. It's just monstrous. It, it really sense. is awful. And like, there's, it's just, it's just really, really simple. There's, there's simply not enough food. And not only is it bad politics, it's exceptionally bad policy because let's take small C conservatives at face value. And small C conservatives tend to be concerned about kind of government spending and how they, how they use taxpayers' money. That I understand. I understand why you'd be fiscally conservative in that way. But what I don't understand is why there have been very, very few, if any, conservative politicians or journalists who stood up and said, this is ridiculous, because this is £30 worth of government money buying kind of three days worth of lunch. It's just really, really terrible. And again, one of the things that has caught my attention at the moment is I'm, I'm looking at the government document now on the government website that runs through what you should get in a school lunch and it basically says look you need to get a certain amount of starchy food a certain amount of fruit and vegetables meat fish eggs etc etc milk and dairy and also some food that is in high in fat sugar and salt and the thing about this as well is that the whole idea behind this policy is to give kids the food that they need while they're not at school because of the coronavirus situation and it's really difficult to look at this and think that there is any sense of what this is trying to achieve because it's just simply not feasible it's like why are you chopping up half a carrot and giving half a carrot to one people mm. one one kind of family group and half a carrot to another family group it's just nonsensical and i think it's completely detached from the situation on the ground again another example i'm looking at an image this is again from jack monroe that's probably half a lo half a loaf of kind of half a small loaf of bread a couple of packets of biscuits, you know, the ones that you get in hotels, like with your teas, mm. like not full packets of biscuits, like small packets of biscuits, one jack potato, a pear, an orange, two apples, I think some cheddar cheese in a block, again, wrapped in cling film, and some Heinz spaghetti hoops. And it's great. I don't think this is an acceptable policy. So, Zach, what have people been saying today? kind of in the government, in the opposition, and in the Manchester United Stanton lineup. Well, I think we should start with the, the man of the match, if we're going to use the football analogy with Marcus Rashford, who I think he actually started his awareness of this situation even this morning. And it has, uh, the fuse has blown since that essentially he's been putting light onto it, condemning it, even comparing the prices, doing so much to raise awareness for this. And this void between the main opposition party and the government on this issue once again has been shown. It took hours, and I, honestly hours, for the government just to say this was unacceptable, completely unacceptable, we'll talk to the Department of Education, etc, etc. And then Keir Starmer puts out a tweet as well saying this is completely unacceptable, this is not good enough, this should help families even more. And you are thinking this inept 
lack of leadership from both sides in this debate. I don't think anyone comes out smelling of roses if you're Labour or Conservative as to this issue, because it took Marcus Rashford to make everyone aware of it again, Marcus Rashford to take a lead on this again, for some sort of reaction and comment from the main parties. It's completely baffling, although I'd say that Angela Rayner on Facebook has done relatively well in basically doing what Jack Monroe has done on Twitter by saying, if you get in contact with Angela Rayner, send her an email of the picture of the food hamper you've been given and where you like whereabouts you are just to shine an issue this is not just a localized incident this is all across the country just to make politicians aware of it and that's really where we're going and you've also had an apology from one of the contractors about this yet at the same time it just feels that once again everyone that's inverted commas the important decision making people here have responded way too late to this and this is already an issue that has affected millions of people and has been made aware to thousands of us already. Exactly and I think on onto what Marcus Rashford has said today so he tweeted earlier I wanted to share key points from a conversation with Chartwells UK this morning this is a there is a meeting scheduled between Chartwells and the Education Department of Government so Rashford said Free school meal hampers are currently distributed to provide 10 lunch meals per child across two weeks. This concerns me firstly as relied on breakfast clubs, free school meals and after school clubs. Is one meal a day from Monday to Friday sufficient for children who are most vulnerable? He went on to say the value uplift of the free school meal hampers has not yet come into play. We have so many independent businesses who have struggled their way through 2020. Why can't we mobilise them to support the distribution of food packages? Or perhaps I'm being naive. Chartwells supply free school meals when schools are operational. Chartwells is not the exclusive supplier of free school meals across the UK. They have asked me to make it clear that the picture in circulation that features the pepper is not one of their hampers. And just to interject at this point, it's really extraordinary that that Chartwells thought that was a good thing to point out when like because there was yeah. there's a specific image going around online of half a pepper. And again, it's like Okay, so that specific example was a different company, but we're, we're making a big song and dance about the pepper when we're ignoring the fact that you're giving kids like <laughs> half a loaf of bread and two bits of cheese. It's just unreal. It's a, sh it's a shaggy defence, isn't it? It, you know, it wasn't me. It's not an issue yet. If they are a contract here, they could say, actually, yeah, you're right. That wasn't us. Yeah, that's unacceptable. That is kind of our competitor's in this in this area we need to completely change how we're doing it and they didn't say that all they said was well we're sorry that that's happened it it just shows you that lack of empathy and that just attachment from reality in general that the people that have criticized actually the families which is just beyond belief yet there are of course your typical people on twitter that do this they were criticizing the families rather than the contractors and you're thinking it's not the family's fault there are millions and millions of people are in poverty in this country and actually it takes me to a, a quick anecdote i was on my way home from shopping yesterday and i saw this um billboard that actually said about 11.4 million people in this country are in poverty which it it made me look about twice i'm thinking it can't be 11.4 million there's about 60 million in the country that's suggesting that a big proportion of this country is in poverty yet that's what the banner was saying and it is it is just genuinely unthinkable that this is this is being allowed to continue and hopefully the government and all the relevant people involved can 
make a significant departure from what's happening at the moment. Back to what Marcus Rashford said on Twitter earlier. So his chartwell hampers also feature a supporting recipe so that families can easily identify what they should cook. Supplies are typically offered directive from the Department for Education. And once food is supplied to the school network, schools have the autonomy over the hampers are distributed. And then he says, schools, if this is not the case, please let me know. And then in to conclude, Marcus Rashford, Manchester United striker, and of course England says, one thing that is clear is that there was very little communication with the suppliers that a national lockdown was coming. We must do better. Children shouldn't be going hungry on the basis that we are transparent with plans. This is unacceptable. He then concluded, I have a game today, so I have to log off, but I wanted to update you on the conversation and I look forward to hearing the outcome of the Department for Education meeting today. Something is going wrong and we need to fix it quickly. Now, we've kind of discussed basically our outrage at the situation itself. And to bring some of the politics to understand is that why Marcus Rashford's communications has been so much clearer than anyone in the House of Parliament. I re- that's what really does confuse me of course it's not the the important thing at this point but we're a politics podcast and we're going to talk about the political elements of this i don't understand why marcus rashford has produced kind of the most detailed description of the situation that's going on today ahead of the government ahead of opposition mps and ahead of basically every journalist the only journalist who i've seen has published I mean, it's just quite bizarre. And then we'll compare and contrast what Marcus Rashford said today with what Sakia Starmer, the Labour leader, said yesterday, or, or perhaps earlier today. In a tweet published 10 hours ago, so, so this morning, Keir Starmer says, the images appearing online of woefully inadequate free school meal parcels are a disgrace. Where is the money going? This needs sourcing immediately so families don't get hungry through lockdown. Zach, what do you make of the Labour Party's position on this? It's all well and good, Keir Starmer, saying this, and it's kind of, it was a predictable thing. I think either of us and anyone, any of our listeners could have said the exact same thing. I think the actual effect of what he's saying doesn't really have much sway that, well, yeah, of course it's unacceptable. You're not, not going to go on Twitter and say, oh, well, it is what it is unless, you know, you want to commit political suicide. So it was a predictable thing from Keir Starmer. But yet again, there's nothing that's been said that what Labour would do in this situation. It's always been something of an attack towards Labour, reasonable or not, that it's all well and good condemning what's happening, because I think it should be condemned. Yet Keir Starmer, who fatefully the day before had a massive speech on Labour being the party of the family and how Labour can support families, working families, through lockdown and beyond yet Keir Starmer just stopped at saying well this is obviously unacceptable okay where is the the initiative here what would Labour do would Labour just bring back the 30 pound vouchers which I think many families would rather have than this food hamper that's clearly inadequate or it's something like that it's that that policy gap that the thing that's always been missing with Labour for the past few months that they say a lot yet they don't do a lot or say they're going to do something about it I think Labour's position on this should have been really easy. They should have just gone in with a clear position and said, look, 
we either support the hampers or not. But either way, if we're going to have the hampers, they need to improve. If we're not going to have the hampers, we need to put the right, right safeguards in place and the right people get the right government resources. And I just think looking at this, like, this is an issue that Labour should be really on top of. And there are, of course, Labour politicians who would have experienced this, this personally. And of course, there will be Conservative politicians who have probably experienced this personally as well. And what really surprises me about the whole situation is that it's not been emphatic. Like, if, I haven't, I've really struggled. And again, I often go out of my way to try and find people defending things that I think are ridiculous. Because I like to see how kind of the other what other people are saying and i'm really struggling to find any kind of reputable stature defending what's going on with with the free school meals because it's just so egregious and the thing that i find particularly striking is that and again i i'm not particularly interested in this plot line anyway this part of the story but chartwell was one of the kind of the ceo is, is linked to the tory party kind of by by varying degrees and i think okay so you've got that angle where you can talk about kind of cronyism in the conservative government again but i think the most important thing to to get on with and to talk about if you're a politician in parliament is to say well how do we improve the situation and regardless of their links or supposed links to the government why are they creaming off the top of kind of poor kids lunch money it shouldn't be a particularly difficult issue to frame in that way and there was some of that I sent to Zach earlier today as well. Pointing out that this is a very much an English that compares yeah. England with Wales. So the kind of the coalition, mainly Labour, but there are Liberal Democrats involved. And it's worlds apart, the two images. And again, to kind of case studies. And I think it's important to note that they are people's experiences and this isn't in any way kind of analytically driven but i think given the number of stories we've heard given the lack of support for this we're seeing i think it's an open and shut case and boris johnson needs to sort this out doesn't he really absolutely and the, the central, I think you, you were talking about the idea that you're trying to find people who would disagree with what's happening, uh, who would agree with the packages. The age-old thing has always been, even on the, at the start of the free school meals debate back last year, was always that the government wastes taxpayers' money, it's not getting charity starts at home. Yet when the suggestion is that we should be doing more for free school meals and more for support campers like this to make them acceptable, you see people on the right that, that almost get offended at the notion of alleviating policy at the expense of taxpayers' money. And it's that, that idea, that cognitive dissonance that you want charity to start at home, yet you don't want to support families. And again, Boris Johnson's the Prime Minister here. He should be taking the lead by saying this is clearly unacceptable. We need to rethink policy. I think it would be purely cosmetic to change the concept of the hamper. I think the open goal is the £30 voucher, because after all, if Johnson is this social liberal that he apparently wants everyone in the media to believe he is, I don't think the solution is hampers to families. I always think that families know what's best for their children. And again, it's that open goal to help his critics to say, actually, yes, Johnson is placing a lot of faith in the family by saying, look, I, you know what's best for your kids. Here's the voucher for the food. 
and have done with it, bury the issue. Yet the more that the government's like lack of action on this, again, it's all well and good saying this is clearly unacceptable. Do something about it. You're the government here. You've got the opportunity to not make this a political issue. But the longer they did, the longer they delay, as has been long seen with every issue for the past year and a half of this government, they let the the issue cut through and then do something about it, which damages them politically further and further across the line. On this topic as well, is that being poor in in Britain is a stigmatised issue, and you have this kind of political discourse that surrounds this that people who are asking for help from the government are in some way unworthy or deserving themselves in and the issue with this and i think it's this situation is exacerbated of course by the pandemic and you often hear the retort on social media in particular and in pubs and whatnot that kind of well if you can't afford your kids you shouldn't have them and okay even if we take that assumption at face value and and we say that we agree with the idea that if you can't afford kids, you shouldn't have them. Well, what happens if both parents are working kind of at the time of conception and then two years along the line, the dad dies in a car crash and then a year later, the mum gets made redundant from her job? I mean, of, of the discourse on this situation, easy to fall beneath and so easy to see how that might happen to, to anyone in almost any situation. We still have this really weird attitude about poverty in this country as if these people deserve to be poor and of course people make individual choices all the time many of which are bad choices but that doesn't mean that they doesn't that they don't deserve kind of support from the government or support from each other and i think that's why this issue is so difficult to deal with well it shouldn't be difficult to do to deal with but it has proven to be difficult to deal with because you have this ridiculous kind of dual monologue that's going on within within parliament talking about well how well are the parents going to be responsible enough to to spend this voucher not on fueling the the drug and tobacco addictions because of course that's what poverty looks like of course everyone who needs free school meals has a chain smoking kind of brace of parents and all of this kind of stuff it's just really ridiculous and i think it's just nasty. Oh, yeah, it's, it's completely nasty. And I think the thing that's lost in British politics in particular is the idea that this could happen to anyone. And there are so many people who are like, well, who have the attitudes that I'm talking about, who, who are of the opinion that if you can't afford your kids, you shouldn't have them. I mean, it's just nonsense. It really is nonsense. And again, one of the things we often hear, and I think this is where the contradiction is that we should look after our own. So when the conservative liberal democrat coalition government raised the percentage that was spent on foreign aid you had people up in arms about the fact that this money wasn't going to kind of british people in britain and what about the veteran kind of the army vets who are on the streets and all this kind of stuff and then you suggest policies that would help impoverished people in the united kingdom and people complain again about how they don't deserve help and it's like okay so you can be fiscally conservative and not believe that kind of foreign aid is a British taxpayers money and then you can be fiscally conservative and basically say there should be no safety net at all and I think people number two that there shouldn't be a safety net need to 
the current situation that we see kind of in the, in the media and in parliament is that they won't un own up to that position because it's so unpalatable and so gross absolutely and a big criticism of this country as a whole is that I think by level by academics and also some journalists and politicians that sadly the British people do love a scapegoat and the more you run out of scapegoats the more that you'll try to find and sustain one so we've already had at some point in our history it was always the Europeans and now once Britain has now left the European Union there has to be some other scapegoat to kind of keep people voting for your establishment party so okay actually well those people below us that are the less deserving it's that it's that language that's been in our politics for years and years just it's just metamorphosized into different groups of people and that's now the new scapegoat i think is now poorer families which is just disgusting to see yet sadly whatever the government do if they were to say tomorrow that we're just going to give everyone all these vouchers etc and we go oh that's great there's always going to be a, an element of the community that's going to disagree with that policy. So it should be an easy issue. It's not an easy issue as we've been seeing. And even the solution, as easy it is to talk about the solution, easy as it is to implement it, it's the aftermath of that solution that's going to be difficult. So it's it's just symptomatic, really, of where our politics is in 2021, which is still quite a depressing politic. That's something that that has existed in British politics forever. I mean, I remember years ago it would be now. We were, we were I think, we were both in well, probably all the time when public enemy number one was the junior doctors for having the temerity to strike about their conditions. And one of the so it's not funny, but funny in terms of how ridiculous it is is the fact that anyone kind of below a registrar is considered the junior doctors. And the way the media and particularly conservative MPs portrayed this was that, well, it's like these kids fresh out of university are expecting too much, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, so they were public enemy number one. And then, yeah, obviously, the European Union has been this big bad wolf that was the wrecking Britain for so, so long. We've always seen these narratives because it creates a compelling story that you can sell to voters where you can say, well, look, kind of this country would be doing all right if it wasn't for this other group, whether that be junior doctors, mm. that be teachers. And again, I think to, to shift the conversation on a little bit, the amount of times we see recently during the coronavirus pandemic, people having to go at teachers online because they didn't want to be teaching kind of 30 kids in a small classroom during a pandemic was astounding it's just i think public attitudes in the in the uk almost in the eu there are so guided by the conservative press and the remarkable thing about this as well is this is a situation that will only intensify once we have kind of the new news channel by andrew neil and and people of his ilk and i think that is something that does concern me going forward for the future of our politics because as much as channels like the BBC, ITV and Sky are criticised, I think the reporting is still pretty good when you compare it to what we see in the United States. And to go on that track, I think, brings a whole new level of, of toxicity into our politics. Absolutely. And almost in tandem with the new news channel, GB News, you're going to see a new party 
Fox's party, I think, is still, I don't know, a work in progress, whether or not that's actually going to happen or not, is another thing. And you've also got the dawn of Reform UK. So our politics is shifting as well as our political parties. And the more political party you have in, in this country, the more discourse there's going to be. And we don't know the level of scrutiny and the level of media attention Reform UK will get. And that could be another thing that adds into this kind of cauldron of content and discourse going forward. Definitely. And I think the, the most kind of relevant part of that is the fact that Nigel Farage's Reform UK is up and running once again. And they've already got a politician in situ in Scotland. I'll, I'll have to have a look through our DMs like, to, to remember who exactly it was. But what do you expect from Reform UK going forward? Because this is a party that have been campaigning, or I should say will be campaigning for things like proportional representation and reform in the House of Lords. So that's going to create some fascinating dynamics in Parliament, you'd imagine. Absolutely. And I said this in a thread that this will be a massive headache for the Conservatives, but also for Labour, because... When they were their Brexit party form, eventually Boris Johnson kind of knelt down and went for a very hard Brexit that would appease the likes of Nigel Farage, Richard Tice et al. Now there's not that dynamic there. I think that kind of idea of the non-aggression pact between the Conservatives and Reform UK, as they will now be, will be gone. And it's kind of carte blanche for Reform UK. They are going to campaign in Conservative areas. They're going to campaign in Labour areas. And what you'll see eventually is what you've seen with Nigel Farage for the past 15 years, that no matter how irrelevant people see, think he is to be, he's still one of our most influential politicians of this generation. And the way it will be a headache for the Conservatives is, say the Conservatives do get a kicking at the next local elections, whenever they are, and Reform UK does relatively okay. They, they get a decent share of the vote, a five, six, maybe seven percent if they're on a really good night. You'll start to see Farage kind of be emboldened by that. And once again, as he did with UKIP, try to guide conservative policy with that fear in Boris Johnson's mind that if he doesn't reach that policy area before Farage, the Conservatives will lose votes to Reform UK. And that helps Labour as the Conservative majorities in, in safe seats across the country will begin to dilute in Conservative to Labour marginals the majority is going to be even worse for them. And it'll be easy for Labour to pounce on these seats. So it'll be a huge headache, I think, for the Conservatives going forward. But it's all contingent on how well Reform UK are received. And that's all going to be down to Nigel Farage himself. And it's quite interesting that he's kind of stayed out of this conversation at the moment about free school meals and such. And it will be, we are all waiting for him to come out and have a, a policy angle. And this is Reform UK are now up and running. Indeed. And just to fill in some of the gaps, so Michelle Ballantyne has defected from, well, she was a Conservative member of the Scottish Parliament, she then became an independent, and now she's sitting as the Scottish leader of Reform UK. And I think kind of the Brexit Party already had a couple of couple of members in the Welsh Parliament, the Senate as well. I think the thing to remember about Reform UK is that it's going to cut across a number of issues and not in a way that makes a lot of sense. So normally what you'll see is the parties on political compasses. And 
what it looks like will be the case is that Reform UK will have a real mixture of, of policies that don't really make a lot of sense together. And I think that could be really interesting to see how they draw votes away from different parties. And I have no doubt that Reform UK will be Eurosceptic, and I have no doubt they will be kind of economically conservative. But with policies like kind of proportional representation, changes to the House of Lords, that does switch things up a little bit. And I think it's going to be really interesting how these messages are is Britain's number one populist. And time and time again, his come back from the dead and, and pulled another rabbit out of the hat. And I think Reform UK could have a huge impact, but the fact that its message is so mixed up at the moment leads me to believe that maybe this isn't going to be as effective as kind of UKIP were and, and the Brexit party. Absolutely. Just, just because I think, although the coronavirus is as it is at the moment, I'd actually argue there's no central issue in UK politics at the moment where the reform could actually move into. I think it's too packed in at the moment. But of course, in the next few years, when there will never be, I think it will move to the economy. I think the economy and the NHS will be the two most important issues going into the next general election. It will be interesting with the reform position on, for example, how you tackle the deficit. Now, if the reform party were to be politically astute, I wouldn't think Farage would be advocating for austerity. And again, if the Conservatives are seen to be implementing austerity measures, that's another chunk of the vote that could be going to Reform UK if they take the lead against the Conservatives on reforming and tackling the economy. So, and as you see with Nigel Farage for years, it's always been, he's been the headache towards the Conservatives. Maybe last year was the exception, he was a headache towards Labour. But I wouldn't think Keir Starmer be against Reform UK kind of broadening out a bit. I think for the final 10 minutes of the show, we should probably talk about a couple of coronavirus stories that are making the rounds at the moment. I'll start off with a mini rant. I'll be really blunt. <laughs> I could not care any less about Boris Johnson going on a bike ride. I just, I just don't <laughs> care. And again, I would love people to message me on Twitter and tell me why I should care about this issue. But I just don't care. I mean, he went for a cycle for seven miles, cycled around a bike, and whether or not he got dropped back to Downing Street or not, I don't really care, to be completely honest. I just think we have so many more important issues to be talking about in our democracy at the moment. To be concerned with whether or not the Prime Minister has broken the rules or not is ridiculous. And the thing that is actually important about the storyline and there are parallels to be drawn with the two women, I think, from Derbyshire who were fined for walking around with Costa, effectively. Um, I think the important thing to remember is that the legislation and the guidance is so weak. Like, uh, the discussion that we've been having over recent weeks, it, well, I say us, the media has been having over recent weeks, is that whether or not people have been complying with the latest coronavirus lockdown, what we haven't been talking about enough, though, is that people are actually complying with the new rules of this lockdown. The rules just aren't as stringent as what was in place in March, which is why you see situations like Boris Johnson going on a bike ride in London, in Stratford, because he can, because there isn't legislation to prevent him from doing so. So my mm. beef isn't with Boris Johnson going on a bike ride, because if I was Boris Johnson, the idea of going kind of riding around the 
riding around the Olympic Park sounds quite nice. My beef is with the fact that the legislation is not strong enough, considering we have a more virulent strain of the virus and people are still having to send their kids to school because not enough things have been shut down. Absolutely. Uh, when I saw the story, I thought, again, it's one of those non-stories that just is there to pack up everything else that's going on around it. And it, I looked at it thinking, well, the thing that Boris Johnson took away from his bike ride was he was seeing that not many people were following the rules. And in a way, I think that's a positive that he's finally actually seen the rules that are in place though, are clearly obviously not that good because infections are still going up. There's still a lot of people dying from this virus. People infected is still in the 40s, 50,000s. And perhaps it's through the, doing things like that that will make him think, OK, what can we do to make tougher measures? And I think the thing that's kind of the beef I've got is that it's the delay that they're going around all the media around saying, well, we might have to have a look at these regulations. We know what might means when it comes to this Conservative government over the past few months. Might always end up within a few days time, a new, a new uh, restriction being put in. So it's kind of, it's an irritating story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is ultimately the crux of it. It's just such a non-story and it's another attempt to create a political scandal. And again, some of the things that have happened throughout this pandemic with, I mean, Dominic Cummins is the main example, but you also have the SNP MP who tested positive for coronavirus and then thought it would be a good idea to jump on the train. I mean, stuff like that is ridiculous and egregious and should be reported in the media and should be something that the public is interested in. I don't think, apart from hyper-partisan people on either the left or the right, are going to be bothered whether or not Starmer or Johnson go for a bike ride a couple of miles away from their house. It's just such a political non-story that I think... The, the fact it's a non-story is the reason I wanted to address it. It's just the fact that, well, why are we talking about this? And what does that say about the broader discourse, about the fact that, well, people are kind of sticking to the legislation, but the legislation is looser, and thus that's why you see more cars on the road and more people out and about. One of the things that I found really confusing about this lockdown is that kind of big companies like Next are offering click and collect services. Yeah, they still do as well. I don't know why they're allowed to. <laughs> I just think... If we're going to have a lockdown, we should probably do it properly. And the idea that people can kind of go to the kind of shopping centres and pick up the click and collect delivery from Next just seems really bizarre because then you have a situation where people are still going into town centres. And then, of course, that is a risk in, in itself. The coronavirus situation is, mm. is really starting to grind on me at, the, at this point because we've been here for nine months we're talking about the same things and we go again basically it's like a it's like a bro it's like a broken record and it it's actually just a story but not a story basically um of course with the third lockdown that legally we're not allowed to enter campus accommodations etc yet the un the uh, university i go to emailed us by saying well if you are on campus you can obviously access campus facilities because the campus is covid safe yet they've banned our lecturers from going onto campus to conduct the lectures in their offices and it makes you think well again where's the policy for higher education you either shut schools and all of and all of the sort at the same time or you don't and again it 
I think as as we, we're students ourselves and most of our listeners will be, I do feel like the government in their restrictions and in their policies regarding the coronavirus, especially with the lockdown, not enough has actually been done to clarify things with university education. It's almost as if they ha- they have forgotten that education does go beyond 18 years old. I mean, I, re- I reported this on Twitter last week, the comments that Boris Johnson made at one of the press conferences kind of at the start of this month about education, about university in particular. It's a strange one, isn't it? Because we pay lots of money to attend university. And of course, that is sponsored by the government in terms of student loans. And there's just been a general disinterest in the issue. I think even I think I probably said this previously, but even from opposition MPs who would potentially be looking to make a name for themselves in terms of kind of proposing this any kind of legislation on this are not really saying much about the issue to talk about tuition fees because there is an assertion that you'll probably get from people on the right who will say well look at these pampered students thinking we'll pay for all their education etc 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 and then you'll have people who are either from the Labour Party or from the Liberal Democrats scared to talk about tuition fees because of the previous record that their parties have and I think that's partly why we're in a situation where no one really wants to talk about it and you just have lots of really frustrated students not knowing what to do. Absolutely and um, even at the press conferences this week that Boris Johnson is saying well we'll talk about it we'll think about it. it, I don't think it's reassuring for students that you know what what are we supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to go back to campus because if our lecturers aren't allowed to and we feel like we can't study at home. Do we go there? And what's significant is that you've seen with, I believe, primary and secondary schools that they have issued out laptops and all of the sort. Again, the argument's going to be, well, education does go beyond A-levels. It, it, some people who are undergraduates, if they were to study from home, are severely disadvantaged as to their office spaces, if there is even is space to do learning. What, do, what can the government do there? And you'd think, again, it's an open goal. If students feel like they, their maintenance, like I think this is the big thing that's lost in the translation stories. I think the tuition fees is kind of your headline thing, but what boils down to is what's being paid out across the year is through the maintenance loan. And if the maintenance loan is going on accommodation that you can't enter, rather than supporting yourself during this time, then what's the point of the maintenance loan? And again, the government can address this by saying, OK, we'll we'll find a way of subsidising it so the landlords and the universities get their money, get their rent, that the students don't lose out on their maintenance zone. And they can use that maintenance zone as they please as to enhancing their learning opportunities by, I don't know, buying a chair and a desk from Ikea. Yet that's not been in it. It's, again, it's one of those things like the free school meals in a way that there's no left or right answer. It's all about what side of the debate are you are you for or against it and if you're against it it's probably a politically bad thing to be against and as i think we go into this next term and restrictions either bite or whatever it will be interesting to see how the government do finally realize that university students actually exist the thing that really strikes me about university is there's probably a really easy way to solve this issue where i don't know what the figure would have to be but universities, or rather the government could say to universities, look, you need to give students a reduction in their tuition fees for this year because it has simply not been of the same quality. And I think if if you 
have sign up to a gym membership and then kind of halfway through the year they get rid of half the running machines they'd probably have to give you some kind of reimbursement wouldn't they because it's kind of it's not the service that you've you've signed up for and i think there should just be a way for universities to say look here's I don't even know what number it would be. A thousand pounds off your tuition fees, five hundred pounds off your tuition fees, and then that's either wiped off your student debt or you get in your pocket. And I think that would go a long way to appeasing students. I don't think the government needs to do much. I think they just need to do something, and they need to be seen. Something. Yeah, I think they just need to be seen to be kind of that they care about this issue. And again, they should care about this issue because presumably a very very high proportion of parliamentarians went to university and probably didn't pay tuition fees because they went before they were introduced. That is what is so frustrating about the situation. Absolutely. I, I've got nothing to add there simply because it it's, again, it's that issue of, well, this is not being either like influenced by the left or influenced by the right or being a centrist. It's essentially what are we supposed to do to help students who are struggling at the moment because their maintenance only is going on somewhere they can't live. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think you're in a really difficult position if you're the government saying, well, do we give them the ability to strike on their rent and all this kind of stuff? I think it's tricky and I, I have a really split position on this as well. And I think I've overcome it recently because I was of the opinion that rank striking on university accommodation was was not particularly fair. And I say this as someone who lives in private rented accommodation, because if I didn't pay my rent, again, it's irrelevant to me because I'm living here. I'm, I'm, my, my property isn't empty. But if I was in a position where I couldn't live in Coventry at the moment and I didn't pay my rent, that wouldn't end well for me. And I do think, well, is it justifiable for universities to do one thing and kind of private lenders to do another? And then I think about it and I put myself in the shoes of people who are living on campus. Most of them, of course, will be first year students. Most of them have had their university, well, all of them have had their university experience decimated. And I think, well, yeah, there, there should be some way where universities work out a system to resolve this because it's really just taking advantage of people because even if the lockdown does end in the middle of February, I think that would take me to, to week five or six of term. So it won't be until kind of week six that people come back onto campus. There will then be five more weeks and then it'll be Easter or rather the end of term two. And well, that's not really getting your money's worth, is it? And I think a big part of the university experience that is sold to students before they do go into university is that you get to use all these world-class facilities you get to use all these cool buildings you get to use all these cool things inside them and of course that hasn't happened this year i mean to their credit universities are investing a lot of money in infrastructure and that's great but you then can't use that as a justification for your nine thousand two hundred and fifty pound tuition fees if none of your students can use them because most of kind of our peers, I, I'm at Warwick, Saxe in Kent, won't be in kind of Warwickshire or Kent. They'll be scattered across the country, and in fact, scattered across the world. And I think I said this last week, but if you compare the tuition fees for the open university versus any university where you physically attend, it's just night and day. And I think there has to be a solution to this because the government is ultimately shooting itself in the foot here. It's ultimately saying to, to a significant portion of the electorate, 
albeit a, a section of the electorate that isn't particularly inclined to vote that often, that they don't matter. And I think that's a huge mistake for any government to make or any political party to make. Absolutely. And again, I, I don't think this issue will go away. I think there's been many times when the issue of students has threatened to pierce pierce like the, this veil in the media that it will be in the light of the news for a few days and then it will go away. I think this issue won't go away and it will be an issue for the embattled Gavin Williamson or whoever his successor may be. I think he's not that far off from probably being deposed as education secretary to deal with. I think it won't go away whether there's Williamson in charge or it's going to be someone else. I think eventually the government will do something. It's whether or not the extent of what they do and when they actually do it. Indeed. Zach, that brings us just over well, about an hour and 10 minutes into the podcast and thought for today's show. Uh, not Nothing much really apart from... Uh, what I said about the US about impeachment being quite a fast-paced thing and in general in the UK side we've got in a way I think we're in that kind of as we were in March where we're literally waiting for the stories to come to us about what's actually going to be happening in UK politics it, it changes near enough every week. Indeed I think kind of my final thought for today is that we see a lot of this in the media discourse in in America saying that well the Democrats should now look to unify the United States following the riot that took place in Capitol Hill, on Capitol Hill, in Congress last week. And I've just seen a really interesting tweet that basically says, Joe Biden says he wants healing, that he won't let us overthrow the government without consequences, so much for the tolerant left. I think it's a really good point. I think people need to stop deluding themselves about the fact that Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to be in a position where they're going to be seeking to unify people. Of course they are. But unifying the country and not impeaching President Trump are two very different things. And I think if congressional figures decide that Donald Trump deserves to be impeached, then he should be impeached. And of course, uh, I don't think this would be particularly shocking for me to say this. I think he should be impeached because of his role in what happened last week. We will end it there because I feel like we could go on for hours and hours and hours. And Zach and I both have things to do and food to eat. So that does bring another episode of the Midfield Politics Podcast to a close. As always, my name has been Luke James. I've been joined for this podcast by Zach Green. You can follow us on Twitter at Midfield Politic. All of our details are in the description to this episode. And until next time, stay safe and keep voting.